morning and welcome to Start Your Week with me, Naomi Smith. Today, I'm joined by Roz Taylor to bring you up to speed on the key news stories of the week and what to watch out for. Good morning, Roz. Morning, Naomi. Now, while many of us were reading the Sunday papers and observing Remembrance Sunday, a tragic event took place in Liverpool yesterday morning where an explosive device was detonated from a taxi outside the Women's Hospital, moments before the two-minute silence was taking place at the nearby cathedral. While the taxi driver narrowly escaped with his life, another passenger was killed, and counter-terrorism police have arrested three men. Roz, what do we know so far about this event? Not a great deal, although piecing together the accounts in different newspapers, it does seem that the taxi driver had a passenger, got suspicious of that passenger and drove away from the Remembrance Day ceremony. And then he managed somehow to lock the doors of the cab and escape from it before being caught in the explosion or in the subsequent fire that consumed the vehicle. So that's the account that I was seeing. So it would seem from that that the terrorist potentially was the one who was killed in the attack. And as you say, three other men have been arrested in various parts of the city. We don't know yet what the motive may have been or what kind of organisation might be behind this. But obviously, remember, Sunday ceremonies have been targeted in the past. What I mean, if he did manage to do that, then what a hero. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and thank goodness he, he did escape with his life, albeit injured. Yeah. Now, look, Remembrance Sunday was not only marred by what we are assuming for now was a terrorist attack in Liverpool, but also by the absence of Her Majesty the Queen, um, who cancelled her attendance due to back sprain. I don't know about you, Roz, but I thought her recorded video for COP26 a couple of weeks earlier showed her looking much more frail than usual. And to my eyes, at least not in inconsiderable discomfort or even maybe pain. Do you think we need to brace ourselves for her passing or is this just the start of even further winding back of her duties during her dotage? I mean, it could be either. It's very hard to say because the palace is so cagey. I don't know if you read Private Eye, but probably the biggest insight into the Queen's health is in there. It's certainly much more revealing than anything else I have seen, which says that she had uh, an infection that wouldn't go away and basically meant that it was difficult for her to go anywhere. I won't go into further details for a long period and certainly to stand. And on top of this was the back sprain. She apparently already had a bad back. So she is, I mean, for a 95-year-old, this is still quite not bad health, but she is a 95-year-old. And it is clear that regardless of how much longer she may have to live, we will have to do without her at these kinds of events. There are photos in the papers today of Kate looking pretty upset and let's say not at her best. I think those are meant to convey what uh, the, the dismay among a lot of people that she hasn't been able to make this event, which she will have wanted to. It's really important to her to go to Remembrance Sunday. It's a key part of her duties as far as she's concerned. So yes, this is, well, I hesitate to say the beginning of the end because it's so hard to even talk about the Queen passing on. But it comes at a time as well when Britain is in great flux and when everything feels as though it's changing very rapidly and not for the better. And I think that the UK will be facing some big questions and some big soul searching about where it's going and its future in the next year or so. 
And of course, part of that uh, that we can't escape is climate change. And the other big news of the weekend was the conclusion of the COP26 talks. Host Alok Sharma looked visibly deflated, if not tearful, as he told the world negotiations had led to the phasing down, not phasing out of coal. And much blame seems to be being heaped on India and China for that. Do you think that's deserved? Yes, I think that's fair. I mean, it's it's certainly it's certainly them that held back the full deal. I mean, they understandably are struggling to imagine a future without coal for themselves. I don't underestimate the scale of the challenge of the transformation required for them to do that. But nonetheless, it was them that after a deal had been hammered out, they turned around and said, right, we're not going to phase out coal, we're going to phase it down. And, you know, phasing down, no matter what Boris Johnson said yesterday on the press conference, phasing down is not phasing out. (laughs) And you can phase down for many decades. So this is really disappointing. And by all accounts, Alok Sharma was quite devastated. He was as you say, tearful. And he had really invested a huge amount in in getting rid of coal. And then that was that was lost. The things to hold on to, because it's it is a blow, the things to hold on to is that as Nicholas Stern of the LSE has said, this is unlikely to slow down the momentum for post-coal, for moving away from coal. China, it is true, is mining more of the stuff than ever. So that is a massive challenge. But for the rest of the world, and I think the US in particular, it will be the beginning of the end for coal. The question is how long that will take. John Kerry said he would take the fight into the next year because basically what this deal does is push things, pushes things forward and says, we'll take another look next year and try and get a better deal. And there's a ratchet in it, which forces countries to return to the table every five years in order to revisit the targets and see how things are going. And I think the way things are going in terms of the climate and the sheer scale and pace of the events that you're seeing, the floods, the wildfires, the weather events, I think there will only be more and more pressure on world leaders to do this. But India and China have an enormous challenge to try to phase out coal. And it's something that they think they should have more help with because Britain and the US and other Western countries have been polluting for centuries now. And what we see now is a legacy of that pollution. And they understandably have a different perspective on it than we do. Now, my Twitter blew up with people saying, not only is it not, you know, we can't deflect all the blame onto India and China, but also Alok Sharma's own voting record on climate is questionable. To what extent do you think his upset was genuine over the fate of the planet versus personal failure and not sort of delivering this amazing new contract on climate change and carbon emissions? Well, it's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, the two were always linked. Uh, He is COP president for another year. So he's got a chance to try and turn things around more if he really does care deeply about this. There's no doubt, though, that I would would be surprised if Boris Johnson wasn't disappointed in him, put it that way, whether it's his fault or not. I don't know whether he will have the scope that he needs to do things. We will, we will see just how much of a priority Boris Johnson decides to make the climate now that COP26 is actually over. And it may be that it will just come off the front pages and 
he will move to other to other subjects. That will be extremely disappointing, but it's entirely possible. Well, <laughs> Johnson will certainly be hoping for some good news for his party because the Slee scandal, I have lost count of what day we are on now, but it's at least a fortnight in. This Slee scandal news has continued throughout the weekend uh, with stories about Jacob Rees-Mogg, more revelations from Jennifer R. Curie about Johnson allegedly breaching conduct in public office rules during his time as London mayor and others. Uh, Roz, is is there, I mean, I don't think there is a quick way to rattle through this and bring everyone up to speed because so many have been caught out with this and, and had the light shone on them from the papers. Do you think there are going to be more stories to come? Does the press pack now smell blood? Yes, it does. And the extraordinary thing is that all these stories were out there for the taking for the past few years. If you just had been troubled to look through the register and match up what MPs were doing. But the perception back then, of course, was that nothing would touch Johnson and there was no point because it would all slide off him like Teflon. And now it isn't. And they sent blood. And it's a different kind of world, political world that we're living in. You saw this, I think, on Saturday. I don't know if you read Matthew Paris's column. He's often very perceptive about when political fortunes have changed. And he said, Flight Bojo 19 is on its final descent. <laughs> and this, you know, this does not necessarily mean that Flight Bojo 19 is going to land or crash any time in the next couple of months or so. But he thinks that his premiership is now on a downward trajectory. And there is nothing really that can save it. And I think that's an important, it's an important note. It does feel as though the shine has come off him. And I don't, you know, for some of us, of course, the shine was never on there. But it was clear that (laughs) other people could see the glow of the shine. And I sense now that that isn't there. What I don't sense is that there's an alternative that they're really excited to go to. You know, I don't sense that they're enthusiastic about voting for Keir Starmer. But I do sense that they're increasingly disillusioned with Boris Johnson. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, I think we're sort of beginning to see the polls nudge. I think it had started with the PPE contracts during the pandemic, um, that sort of sense of scratching our own backs, helping our mates out, compounded by this, you know, one rule for all of you and another for the rest of us with both Dominic Cummings and his notorious Barnard Castle visit and not getting into trouble for that. And then we saw it again with uh, the pandemic where initially Johnson refused to isolate after he was pinged and then Utah. So I think there was already a beginning sense and the, the seeds were being sown of these people being on the make for themselves and considering themselves to be very different and above the rules to others. So I think that helped the credibility of these other stories when they then came out, because you're right, I think the press knew about some of this stuff, chose not to report it earlier because of that that Teflon, but that has definitely become scratch. Someone's been using a, a metal spatula on a Teflon pan and now all of the stuff is beginning to stick. So I think, I think this could be something that's going to be very, very difficult for them to shake off. But Ros, are all the other parties completely clean of this? Because of course, it's not going to just be good enough for voters to start to turn their backs on this government. They've also got to be persuaded by others um, in order for there to be a change of government in the next election. There's no doubt that the Conservatives are deeper in it in terms of earning money outside Parliament than any other party. That said, every party has people in it who are making money in some way 
outside. There was a revelation from the BBC over the weekend about Leila Moran of the Lib Dems, who was using her parliamentary office for a Zoom for a meeting in which she was being paid, I think, about three grand to contribute to a legal seminar. So they, uh, this goes across the board, but the Conservatives, because they have many more outside interests, are always going to be more vulnerable than the other parties to it. On the pandemic front, as case rates soar across Europe, Austria, with one of the lowest vaccination rates on the continent, has introduced lockdown measures for about 2 million of their unvaccinated citizens. Roz, is this carrot or stick and do you approve? Well, it's both, as in so many vaccine mandates. I mean, people, the governments are reluctant to actually say you must get vaccinated because you can't you know, literally drag people down a vaccination centre. So they are incrementally making it more and more difficult for people to participate in everyday life if they are not vaccinated. Mm. And we have seen this in other countries. We've seen, you know, we've seen it in Wales and Scotland as well, which already have vaccine passports for things like going to the cinema. But this is a step forward again, because rather than saying you can't go to a restaurant or you can't go to a play or you can't go to the cinema, they are saying you cannot leave your house except for once a day for necessities unless you are vaccinated. Now, goodness knows how this is going to be policed. I cannot imagine the challenge of, you know, stopping people randomly on the street and demanding their vaccine. I mean, it, it will it will have to happen or it will be ineffectual, but it will be extremely difficult to do because you've still got a third of the adult population of Austria which who are unvaccinated. So one in three people of the, you could be, expect to be seeing around are not vaccinated. And the potential for division is very great. And there is already a strong anti-vaccination movement in the German-speaking countries, which is a mm. little bit different from the one you're seeing elsewhere. It's called generally Kerdenken, and it which means kind of other thinking, lateral thinking, other thinking, thinking in a different way. And mm. it appeals to both the far left and the far right, which of course is not what you're seeing here. There are people for who are supporters of Alternative for Deutschland in uh, Germany, but also people uh, who are supporters of Die Linke, who are quite mm. far left in Germany, who support this movement. Very different profile from elsewhere. That makes it especially difficult to counter because it does have that cross-political appeal. Uh, there have been warnings this weekend that these kind of strict, strict crackdowns will only make it worse and only make their disaffection with the status quo and their distrust in government greater. Mm. But on the other hand, what can these countries do? Do they just see, watch their health services fall over? Because that's the alternative. It's an extremely difficult call. It's one that we should be grateful that we're currently not having to make. No, indeed. And here our own news is that boosters are now being rolled out to the under 50s. Finally, the levelling up agenda with which this government has become so synonymous, despite no one really having any clue what it means, least of all, it seems the government has taken another setback as the story emerged over the weekend that High Speed 2 is now not going to go to Leeds. Ros, I'll get to the optics, but on the practicalities, does this matter if High Speed 3, the, the east-west one that's going to connect Manchester and Leeds, is going to go ahead instead? It will not go ahead, as I understand. 
uh, it, the basically high speed two will go to Manchester, but not on to Leeds. There is talk of, and this is very strange because it's like a patchwork. There's talk of two separate high speed lines, one between East Midlands Parkway and somewhere else, and another one between Leeds and Sheffield. And I don't quite know how this is going to work because, you know, do you speed up and then slow down? It's just, it all just seems a complete mess, but it's very bad for Leeds. And it's strange in a way because Leeds is a new HQ for Northern Conservatives because mm. the Conservative Party have invested quite a lot of money and think about 100 staff in sending people up to Leeds. And now it's going to be denied that high-speed link. I understand Leeds is going to get a tram instead. And i quite like to hear what Leeds people think about getting a tram instead of a high-speed route. (laughs) But yeah, as you say, in terms of levelling up, it doesn't look good. It looks parsimonious. And uh, it's clear that Rishi Sunak has got his way because he's desperately trying to rein in the spending that's involved with HS2. It's very, very high. But it does look as if we're the kind of country that rather than getting a decent high speed link in the way that uh, a European country would do, it just thinks about it after several years, abandons it and then shoves in a couple of minor schemes, add-on, bolt-ons, which are going to manifestly be inadequate. And it looks very bad as well after COP26. It does. It's, and it's just so frustrating because, you know, you've got to have a bigger strategy. I think when you're planning major infrastructure projects, you've got to be thinking about, well, what are the big infrastructure projects in 30, 40 years time that this may well connect to? And it just feels that this piecemeal approach means we're forever going to end up with a sort of slightly substandard transport network but hey yeah, ho, ex- hey exactly ho. and you've got a situation as well where they're cutting air passenger duty so making it easier yeah, yeah. to take flights which will be taken up on and you know they yeah. the uh, famous Tory mayor of uh, Teesside Ben Houchen has got a, a, an airport that he's ploughed a lot of public money into which he very badly wants to use and the fact is that it is easier to build airports and bring in new air routes than it is Trains, you have to have massive infrastructure for trains. Of course, it's also easier to take them away and get rid of them. But the the fact is that this will just give a big boost to air at a time when you really don't want that because 10% of British emissions now are from air travel. Well, Grant Shapps is the other one to watch on vested interest when it comes to air, uh, as was on the front page of, I think it was the Sunday Times yesterday. Go and read that if you missed it. That's it for this week. My big, big thank you to you, Roz. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And don't forget, we have a show almost every day, sometimes two. So please do leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find us. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Uh-huh.